Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today we're back in the podcast studio. I've got another special guest for you coming to us all the way. It's probably sunny because people move to Colorado and say because they move there because it gets like you know, 320 days of sun a year, but then they don't talk about the mud. I know people have complained about the mud. I, I knew a friend who moved out there and said, yeah, we get all the sun, but no one talks about all the mud in between the seasons and the snow and the melt. But coming to us all the way from, if you haven't guessed it, Colorado, the Denver area, Dan Hawthorne. Dan, thanks for joining us on the Project Purple podcast. Thank you for inviting me on. Is it sunny today? Yeah, it's it's extremely sunny today. Um, that was one of the things my my wife is uh, of Irish descent, so she's got the pale skin and everything. And she got out here and was like from the New York area and was like, "There is way too much sunlight out here, and it's way too dry." <laughs> <laughs> uh, before we hit record, we were talking about I've been out to Colorado many times. I love the state. We've got a lot of alumni out there. We've done events out there, um, and, and I wasn't kidding before. I mean, I, I think. It, I think I've seen a statistic. I don't think it's as high as 320, but I think it's like in the high 200s of, of like, I think if you look it up, maybe we could do that in between here, but I think it's like 278 sunny days a year, which oh, I think yeah. is the record for, you know, any place in the country, maybe other than San Diego, but uh, yeah, great place <laughs> to live. Uh, it's been very good for us here at Project Purple. And so uh, thank you for being with us here today. Full disclosure, as I always say, uh, Dan and I connected. I, I got to bring this up because, you know, social media. I, I always let me back up. I always think you get you always. I always try to find the positives in every situation, and you know, social media as negative as it is right now uh, for a variety of reasons. I'm, we're not going to go down that road, but has been a blessing for us here at Project Purple to connect with so many survivors, and and you're one of the examples. Um, a recent guest that was on our podcast, I saw you guys were commenting to each other on, on social media and I asked that guest to connect us and here we are. Um, and I, I just love that because as you and I were talking about before we hit record, you know, just some of the things that we're all trying to amplify and this is how we do it, right? Like these connections, yeah. these networks that we build and being able to voice these stories and share these stories among the public on whatever medium um, that gets out there is just so wild. And and that's what this disease needs. You know, that's what yeah. we need to do. We need to, you know, amplify the messaging at, at like a thousand volume, you know, to get this out there. So I, I just love sharing those stories with the audience because as I said, I really do try to find the positive in everything uh, that we touch and that we get involved in. And, and, you know, this is also a testament to the podcast to be able to share these journeys and share these stories. So with that, Dan, I'm going to hand the mic over to you. And as I tell our guests, um, here's your opportunity to share how you got to us today, your journey, and you can go as far back and you can stay as high level as you want. And with that, <laughs> the mic is yours. Awesome. So one of the things I wanted to go back to is since you were talking about the way that we connected, uh, the person that you're talking about, she and I connected across social media. I don't even remember how, but we kind of figured out that we were at the same stage of treatment. That was one of the most helpful things I ran into was because I could ask her, like, this is what I'm experiencing right now. And it wasn't a doctor telling me it. It was somebody who was experiencing it at the same time. And you'd be like, no, no, that's totally normal. I went through exactly the same thing, or I'm experiencing exactly the same thing. 
Um, because, and I'll get into this part, but you get diagnosed with this disease and you feel very alone almost immediately. Um, I described it to a lot of my family members when I was explaining it to them that there's a scene in, in, uh, the, the last Avengers movie where Captain America is standing on this field about ready to face Thanos and he's just beaten up and there's nobody backing him up. I was like, that's how I feel. Um, I feel completely alone. Like I'm going to go into the fight, but I feel virtually alone and I just need hope. Uh, and that's what a lot of people provided me with was hope. So to kind of go backwards into how I got here, I was literally the person who I'm, I'm 52 now. And I was the person who prior to this, I would go to the doctor and they would ask me like, what medications are you on? I'm like, none. Okay. Well, what surgeries or stuff have you ever had? Nothing. Like I, I was perfect health. Um, and I had decided when I was in Denver, I was like, I'm, we got into the pandemic and I was like, I want to start losing weight. Cause I know everybody else I'm going to put on weight if I don't do something. So I started working on losing weight and I was losing weight. And then I went, went to the doctor and they uh, diagnosed me with diabetes. Um, and I started taking diabetes medication. Right before Memorial Day, um, I started, they switched me to a new medication and I started getting jaundiced. So I went to my primary care physician for my, uh, just to do some blood tests to figure out what was going on. We thought it was the medication. She called me the morning of Memorial Day at 7 a.m. and said, go to the ER right now. I want you to go to the ER. They need to look at this because these numbers are really bad. Um, and I went in and uh, they took blood and found they were like, yeah, it's really not getting better. Because I thought it was getting better just because of the way I felt and kind of the way I looked. Um, and they did a uh, uh, an ultrasound and found that I had a restricted bile duct and that's what was causing it. So they went in to put a stent in while they were in there. The doctor found a, a mass on my pancreas and did a biopsy. And within about a day, um, I had the results back that it was malignant um, and that it was pancreatic cancer. Um, and my medical team reacted it so quickly. It was amazing. Within a day I had a port Within another 24 hours, I was on chemo. Um, so they did not let anything, they did not let any grass grow on it. Um, my medical team did not initially really tell me what stage I was at. Like I asked that later. Um, but basically I was around, like they said, probably stage two. It was a pretty large tumor. It was about four centimeters. Um, and then when I found out later on, it was basically wrapped around it was touching the portal vein. So when I talked to, I had an oncologist and my surgeon I was talking to, and he wanted me, the surgeon wanted me to do chemo for a while. So they planned to do uh, eight sessions of chemo, surgery, and then four sessions. And the surgery was probably going to be the Whipple surgery. And it was going to be a very complex Whipple surgery because it involved a vascular surgeon. It involved uh, somebody who dealt with uh, gastric issues. Um, so I had three surgeons working on me when I went in. Um, the chemo initially really was not that bad. I was kind of surprised. Like my wife and I were both prepared for it to be really terrible. Um, but we also went into 
it was one of the scariest times in our lives because we'd only been, it's my second marriage and we had only been married for about five years and our whole plan, this all came up and our whole plan, this came up in, in June and our plan had been on our fifth anniversary. We were going to go back to Hawaii and kind of revisit Hawaii for our wedding anniversary for our fifth. And my surgery ended up being on October 4th and we got married on October. Uh, my, I was on October 6th and we had gotten married on October 4th. And everything you find out about this disease is you, we're going to try to save your life, but there's not a good survival rate. And my medical team was very upfront with me about that. They were very blunt about, we're going to do everything we can to save your life, but you need to, you need to get your affairs in order just in case, like you may not even survive the surgery. Um, so I went into the surgery having like I wrote a letter to my wife and put it in the safe and kind of told a friend where it was and how to get to it if I didn't make it. Um, so I had prepared not to live past surgery, which is a difficulty in and of itself. Like you and I were talking about, I'm a psychologist. I have a therapist now. And I talked to a therapist about it was a traumatic event. I basically have a PTSD effects from that. So I, I have some, some psych, I have issues that have come up that are basically related to what would be post-traumatic stress. Um, so the surgery was supposed to be seven hours. It ended up being 10 and a half hours. Um, my wife's sister flew in to sit with her. And that friend I talked about was coming in the day after my surgery so that her, her sister had to fly back home immediately. But they, we wanted somebody there with her just in case it didn't go well. Um, and she was uh, waiting for seven hours and it turned into 10 and a half and people got real quiet and she was really worried. And they finally came out and said, no, no, everything's fine. And the whole story was, was they had initially pulled out, done everything they needed to do with the Whipple surgery. Um, it ended up being that they did not have to replace the portal vein, which was one huge complication that could have made it even more difficult. But they pulled everything out. Pathologists looked at everything while I was open and said, no, no, there's some more in there you need to go get. They went in and got it, uh, which is why it took 10 and a half hours. Um, so I came out of surgery with the nod from my surgeon saying, we got it all. Like you, we can't say you're cancer free yet, but we got, as far as I can tell, we got it all. Uh, then I did, I was in the hospital for, and this is why it's so weird. The person that I was talking to on Twitter that you connected with me, she had this, her surgery the day before mine. And she was out of the hospital in three days. I was, I was in the hospital for three and a half weeks because my digestive system just would not take over. Um, I couldn't process food. Um, I lost probably 15 pounds in the hospital over three weeks. Um, I was on IV nutrition for another three weeks after I got home. So my wife had to hook me up to IV nutrition every day. Um, and I would live with this little bag pumping nutrition into me. Uh, and pretty much as soon as I got off of IV nutrition, I went back into chemo. So I had four more chemo sessions after that. Um, and when one of my surgeons, the surgeon who was very upfront with me and very good, 
um, basically said, he was like, before you going to start, I need you to as much as possible because we're going to hurt you and we're going to hurt you really bad, but it's going to be to save your life. Um, and he wasn't kidding. The, uh, the uh, chemo they had me on, once I got out, we had kind of expected the same thing as I had before I went in. And the last four sessions of chemo were really tough. Um, it tore me up pretty bad. I'm still dealing with neuropathy in my fingers, which I'm taking, I'm getting acupuncture to take care of. Uh, about the end of January, I finally had my CT scan that said, without a doubt, I am cancer free. Um, but one of the things you deal with is somebody who's gone through this and it's part of the whole post-traumatic stress thing is for me, like I'm still dealing with some issues with my stomach. Like I still have pain and everything from that. Every time I feel pain, every time something doesn't feel right, I'm immediately like the cancer's back. I go from zero to a hundred on the cancer's back and it's going to get me because I had prepared to die and it was not an easy thing to go through. Um, so to give you, and then also, and you and I were talking about this, uh, because I no longer have a, a gallbladder, um, most of my pancreas is gone. Uh, my stomach has been shrunk down some. I have to take this uh, drug called Creon, which is a digestive enzyme. And I didn't realize it at the beginning, but since the way everything worked was the Creon I was getting initially uh, was um, prior to my insurance resetting at the beginning of the year. When my insurance reset, I discovered that Creon is $10,000 for a 90-day supply before insurance. I have very good insurance through my company. And one of the things that uh, uh, after the insurance, it was $2,500 for a 90-day supply out of pocket. And like... I have a very good job. I, I make a nice wage. This is something I can take care of, but like, it's not going to be easy. I can dump it on a credit card. I can hang on to it and I can sit on it until next year where I declare it on my taxes and it's tax exempt. However, I remember working as a blue collar factory worker in my 20s and going into my 30s where I could not have made this work. I would have just been unable to get the medication or I would have bankrupted my mother because she would not have just let me die. Uh, the cost of my treatment before insurance last year from June until the end of the year was $2.3 million. Um, I paid probably ten dollars to $12,000 out of pocket. Um, and again, that's all money that I can handle, but I remember a time when I couldn't have. I was Hell, there was a point when I was I was selling plasma to make rent or deciding which bill I was going to pay um, or not pay to, to be able to buy groceries. So those are the people that I worry about now with this is my experience is has been very difficult and very demanding. And um, like one of the things that I really wanted to mention is. One of the things that I know helped me was one of the first people I told was my, my boss. I worked with the CEO of this company. And his first reaction was, you and your wife are not going to go through this alone. <clears throat> and he made that happen. We have a, like every company has their list of company values. 
one of the values that we have is value the whole person. And it's basically, we're not going to get, we're not going to like get involved in your personal life, but we are going to value who you are inside of work and outside of work. And that means if you have something going on, we're going to help you make sure you get through it. They did everything that you would expect a company to do if they say that. And a lot of companies don't do those things. So one of the reasons, and I credit, I, I told my CEO this on Friday when I was talking to him and I mentioned I was going to talk on this podcast. I told him, I said, I credit the company with one of the big reasons I'm alive. They took care of me and they took care of my wife while I was in surgery, while I couldn't work, while I couldn't do anything. Because there was a period where I could not take care of myself. And they made absolutely sure that um, in the middle of a pandemic, when my wife really couldn't go out and see other people because I was immunocompromised, um, they made sure she was taken care of. Um, we had friends who looked out for her, but my company actually that looked out for her. Um, so that's one of the reasons I, I credit the things I credit for being being alive is my primary care physician for immediately jumping on this the second she saw something that looked strange. Uh, the medical team that I had for can for the cancer recovery and the cancer treatment was top notch and amazing. Uh, my family supported me through this, and my company supported me through this. Um, so that's kind of my story up until today. Like I'm still in some measure of recovery. Like I still have some pains and I, um, my digestive tract doesn't work the way it used to, which is, is kind of sad. I used to be a beer drinker and I can't take carbonated beverages as well. And that really upsets me, but you know, um, you're here, but I'm here and I'm alive. And that's really the most important thing. Dan, thank you for sharing that with us. I, I, as I said, I've been taking notes here. So mm -hmm. first of all, I love the, the analogy of fighting versus Thanos. Yeah. No one's ever, I mean, no one on the podcast has ever said that. And that to me, uh, I'm, I'm a, my kids, I have two sons, teenagers. So that hit home for me when you said that, I was like, man, that's so, that's so powerful. Like, yeah, that's, that's how this thing is. Uh, it really is. Um, and it, it gave something for the people around me to, well, and I, I, through that, I discovered my, my surgeon is a huge Marvel fan because he immediately loved it and like locked yeah. onto it. But the I people around it. me got it. They were like, you show somebody that scene and you say, that's how I feel. And yeah. they immediately get it. Like you're alone, no chance of survival and you're hurt and you don't know what to do. Um, so it became the symbol I used. In fact, the, the, there's a video out there that my wife did on TikTok um, of my last cancer day. Yeah. And one yeah. of my friends had bought me this mug that says, this is my chemo mug. And when I finish with chemo, I'm going to smash into a million pieces. And um, that day, and I had, a, I had like the Captain America shirt and everything. And that day I had the Mjolnir hammer, this foam Mjolnir hammer. And my wife said, I want to shoot this video of you smashing it. And I, I was like, I'll use the hammer. She's like, it's foam. You're never going to do it. I broke it in one shot. We told my surgeon about that. And he's like, that's because it didn't come from the hammer. It came from here. Yeah. It came from the heart. That's how he hit it. He broke it with one swing. Um, and like that whole image helped me as well as everyone around me through it. Um, 
And I just continued to use it throughout the entire, uh, you know, keeping people up to date on Facebook, on CaringBridge, on Twitter. Like I used that imagery as much as I possibly could because it helped people kind of understand where I was without going into a great big long explanation of why chemo sucks so bad. <laughs> I, lo- I love it. It, it. Home run there. So I just, uh, timeline wise, you said this started Memorial Day. Was that Memorial Day 2021 or 2020? Yes. Okay. So 21. 2021. Yeah. Okay. Because before we hit record, so you, you, you and your wife move out to, I know you said you had spent some time in the Colorado area, but you guys yeah. moved right before the pandemic. So all this goes down during the pandemic, which we'll talk about uh, a bit later, but to just talk about the treatment here. Mm-hmm. Prior to, I know you said you started to lose weight. You wanted to, which kudos. I, I think a lot of people went the other way. Yeah. I'm not here to judge. <laughs> I think there was that joke around like, hey, I gained the COVID-19. Like you gained like the 19 yeah. versus losing it. So prior to life before, let's say Memorial Day 2021, mm-hmm. was there any health issues before? And and. I've got a lot of loaded questions. If pe- yeah. people who listen to the yeah. podcast know, I, I throw these loaded questions out. I mean, th- this is a loaded question in the sense that, and and I've said this a lot too. Hindsight's always twenty twenty, but if oh, we yeah. were to like look back over like the last five years, maybe was there health issues that back then we just kind of all right? That's just you know you're moving or you know stress yeah. or dietary. You know, was there anything along the lines over the last couple of years that we could, uh, that, that maybe could have been a red flag? Not really. Um, the only thing, and, and that's why, like I've told people now, but I know that I just kind of watch people. And if they mention certain things, I'm like, just go get checked. Just go ask your doctor to do a check because this thing is stealthy and it will, it'll get beyond your means real fast. Um, the only things that I can even go back to and think about is when I was losing weight, um, I like, I really just thought I was doing great and I was pulling weight off fast because I was, um, I'm five foot six and I was like 240 pounds, but I'm also really, I've always been really broad shouldered and like mm-hmm. people look at me and don't even, didn't even realize that at 240, I was that heavy. Um, but I had lost probably. 40 pounds in six months. Wow. Um, and really had been, I felt like I was working at it. Like I was doing, I was going to the gym. I changed the way I ate. Like I cut back on drinking, like everything, everything I could think of to lose weight. Cause I really just wanted to, cause I love rock climbing and I haven't been able to find a good rock climbing place except in Denver. There's one two blocks from where I work and I really wanted to go to it, but I couldn't because of COVID. Well, I built one in my basement. And I tried to use it and I was too heavy to actually use it. I was out of shape and I was too fat to get on the wall and actually climb. So that was part of the impetus for me wanting to do it. So I was just super motivated to lose a lot of weight. But I think probably I had help losing the weight. In retrospect, I'm pretty sure I had help losing the weight. Um, The other thing, uh, like there was a point when I hurt my back crawling around the garage and it felt like it hung on for longer than it should have. And I wondered if that might have been some had something to do with it because that's one of the symptoms is severe mm-hmm. back pain. But after that, I never had anything else come up with it, and that was probably 
three months, three, four months before I was diagnosed. The diabetes was the big one because like now I'm not diabetic. Since I had surgery, I am no longer diabetic, which has been a huge help because trying to fit the Venn diagram of what you can eat after mm -hmm. the Whipple surgery and what you can eat as a diabetic is really complex. So I'm glad one of those isn't an issue. The diabetes was the big one. Um, and I was having a hell of a time getting my blood sugar under control, even though I was doing all the right stuff. Um, and that's one of the, like, I had a friend of mine the other day who mentioned to me, like, I, my A1C is just out over and won't come back in. And I was like, just go get, go ask your doctor to check this just because if you're, if I'm right, you'll thank me. If I'm wrong, it's great. Like you just yeah. want to get this checked just in case. When did really, the, go ahead. I'm sorry. I just want to ask real quick. When did the diabetes start for you? Like when were you diagnosed as a diabetic? Um, that was, I think, April of 2021. Okay. Like it so was right. Yeah. So right yeah. before then. Yeah, okay. Right before it. Yeah. There's been, and the only reason I bring that up, I know there's been a lot of work over the last couple of years. There's some big studies going on now that, you know, as you said, um, in your case, you know, you became diabetic and then you were diagnosed, you know, a month later that diabetes has now become another I guess, sign or symptom, we should say, yeah. for early pancreatic cancer or you know pancreatic cancer as a whole, right? We don't know necessarily if it's early, but for pancreatic cancer, not that everyone who gets diagnosed with diabetes is going to have pancreatic cancer, but for those people late right. onset, um, 50 plus, right? Yep. Um, some people may not have a, a, a weight issue. I know a lot of times, sometimes that creeps into people who have a weight issue, you know, that, um, you know, and that can be changed, you know, like you said, with exercise and diet, um, and yeah. people, you know, type two diabetes that is. So yeah, it, it's kind of interesting, the correlation here, but you know, a month before doesn't really, I mean, I, I guess, and it's pretty easy to, to, to say that that was the, the precursor, yeah. but you know, as, as well, again, honestly, it was the, it was the, the thing that triggered the diagnosis was the uh, jaundice because I they had just switched me to this drug glipizide and I still recorded on my records as I'm allergic to it and people the doctors asked me but I'm like well I don't know that I'm actually allergic to it but it makes me nervous because I started taking glipizide and then three days later I had jaundice but the jaundice was because of the bowel stricture the bile stricture uh, the bile duct stricture so pretty sure it was that was the other thing that saved my life was that bile duct Being getting restricted. Yeah. Because if it hadn't have been, I had just gone on for quite a while thinking I had diabetes. And you were losing weight because well, you were working out. Right. And I was trying to get in better shape because of the diabetes. So like well, I started trying to lose weight before that. Then I got diagnosed as diabetic. Then I was trying to lose weight still because of the uh uh, because of the diabetes and like at, by the time I was done with surgery, when I came out of the hospital, I was 106 pounds. So I went from 240, well, 250 at my max to 160. So I lost 90 pounds across the course of that. The other thing I will say, and this is just, it's weird, but I've had enough people as I've talked to them, they're like, it tracks with what we know about animals. We had one, we have one cat who about the time that we figure I was growing this tumor in me decided he was absolutely obsessed with laying across my midsection every single night. If I was not moving, he wanted to lay across my midsection and was absolutely obsessed with it. 
um, since when I got out of the hospital after I had the surgery and he could actually interact with me again, he still likes to lay on me, but not there. <laughs> like, it's not a big deal now. Like, I'm pretty convinced that cat could smell cancer and mm. wanted to lay across me. So it, it, I'm throwing that out there as a, if you have an animal that wants to lay across your midsection and is obsessed about it and you can't make them stop, go get tested just in case. Yeah. Cause <laughs> no, I, I, I thought I saw something. Well, there's, there's like COVID sniffing dogs now. I think yeah. they have, right? So, I mean, like, oh, yeah. and, I, and I think what you what you just said, Dan, is not far-fetched by any means, because I, I know that I thought I saw some research about that, like with animals and how they just know, like there's a sixth sense uh, for yep. illness, right? Like for people that are sick. Um, so- like I I've said on this podcast, man, if it works and, and you know what, someone might be listening on this podcast and their cat hasn't left their side or is on top of their yep. stomach, go get checked. Um, oh, yeah. you know, I think that's, you know, what you describe and, you know, other than the jaundice, right. Which is like, and this is kind of where some of the frustration comes from as in a, as a person who runs an awareness group and builds community. And we try to raise as much awareness as possible throughout the public within the medical field, you know, like what you described, like, Hey, like you, you, you made a conscious effort to lose weight, to get healthy. Then you got diabetic, but like you said, you were, you were a little bit overweight. So like, none of that is like a red flag, right. Until you get yeah. the jaundice. So, yep. you know, and, and that's the frustrating thing. And, and as you said, it's, it's the silent, you know, the silent killer, you know, it just kind of creeps up on you. But, you know, by sharing your story and many others uh, with similar experiences, this is how we uh, hopefully educate and change the narrative. Um, yeah. Kudos. I, I do just want to make this comment. It's very impressive to me that Memorial Day you get diagnosed and then literally, you know, you said in four days, I think it was, yeah. you had chemo right away. And then you had a, a very from hearing what you said, you had a very strict protocol in the sense like you knew what the plan was going in. So yeah. at that point in time, did you did you just go off a referral from your GP? Like how did you find your medical team, I guess is my question to you. Um, it was Rocky Mountain Cancer Centers I went to. Um, and that was all set up. Well, the emergency room that I went to, the hospital I was in, the cancer center was part of that hospital. So I got referred to them from the ER doctors that I had. And then my primary care, she was, she knew about them and was uh, approved of them very, very much. And the thing that was nice was, uh, and I don't know how this works with most, like I've never had anything like this happen. So I don't, I haven't been deeply involved in the medical in the healthcare community as a patient, like I've done a lot of work in the healthcare field, but I had my GP, my oncologist and my surgeon, they were all in communication all the time behind the scenes. They were talking to each other all the time. And my primary care has a pharmacist that works directly in her office. And I work directly with that pharmacist to like, as I was going through the first stages of chemo, one of the things I discovered was, and if anybody's going through this, it's a, it's a horrible pain in the ass. You go from, you get into chemo and a lot of the drugs they use in chemo for uh, pancreatic cancer, fulfirinox, is they're packed in sugar water. 
if you're diabetic, the first one of the problems I had was I would go in for a chemo treatment and my blood sugar would spike, spike yeah. horribly. So I had to start doing insulin shots in the middle of chemo to keep my blood sugar at a manageable level. And I would leave and spend, because you have to leave with a pump on for like two days. Um, and you have to, you have to, I had to keep managing that blood sugar through all kinds of alternative means. I couldn't be on drugs, on the drugs for diabetes while I was in chemo. Mm. So it was a bear to manage those things at the same time. And I had a lot of communication going on between my entire, when I say my medical team, I'm talking about everything from my primary care physician to the oncologist. They were all talking constantly behind the scenes. Um, and I, that was one of the things I was amazed by was how much they communicated without forcing me to be involved in it. Um, I don't know if that's normal in what other people experience. I'm guessing it probably isn't. Um, but a lot of what I went through is managed for me. Um, they made it very easy for me to make some very complex appointments for different things work. Well, I, I got to imagine though, too, Dan, on that note with, with your care and the team. So first, I, I don't think that's, I mean, is it common? I, I, we're not recording video here and we are in video. I was like shaking my head. No, <laughs> I, I, I think it depends on where you go. You know, and we yeah. talked a little bit about this before we hit record, right? Which we'll, we'll talk about in a little bit, but you know, I, I think it all depends. But my question on that is, so you move into the Denver area, like you said, with, with your wife, like right before COVID. So, I mean, you didn't really have a lot of time to kick the tires to find like the no. right, the right facility. So that, so you had to have some pretty big faith in that team. Oh Yeah you know, to, to go down this path and do what you're going to do with very little experience in that community, in that area. There's a lot of like, I, I, we, we talked about it, like what I do for a living. I'm a, I'm a psychologist. I'm not like a clinical psychologist. I'm a work psychologist. Yeah. One of the things I learned to do is read nonverbal behavior a lot. And I'm telling you, I put that to use with this entire team. Um, every time I talked to somebody, I was trying to read them and get a feeling for how much I could trust that person. And I developed a lot of trust with my medical team very quickly um, and held them uh, just the way that they talked to me. My Like I kind of know what surgeons are like just mm -hmm. having done work in the healthcare field. Surgeons who are really good don't necessarily have the best bedside manner. I had, I hit the lottery with the surgeon. He was a, he's an excellent surgeon and he had a great bedside manner and would just talk to me like a person. Um, so I, I attribute a lot of it to luck, but I nailed it quickly. I spent a lot of time trying to gain a lot of trust with that team as quickly as possible um, and really worked at it from my side and pushing them to make sure that I was asking all the really hard questions. Um, I would say anybody going through this, ask your medical team the hard questions. There's nothing you should hold back from them um, because you're not talking about knee replacement surgery. You're talking about something that could, you're talking about a surgery that could kill you. It could save your life, but it could also kill you. Um, like I was asking my, my surgeon before I went into surgery, I was like, what do you need me to do? He was like, well, it's like, there really isn't a lot for you to do. It's like, try to put weight on, uh, make yourself as strong as possible 
And he was like, and don't bleed out on the table. He was like, and like, <laughs> so it was like everything you can do to impact those, that's it. He was like, everything else is in my hands. Um, and there is nothing you can ask your surgeon that is, should be off the table for you because it is a serious thing and it's your life. Um, and I know a lot of people have some struggles with asking questions and pressing people and things like this. And especially if you've got a, if you've got a surgeon who's a little bit more on the not a great bedside manner side of things, it can be difficult to ask those people questions, but you should make sure you push them and ask them everything you can think of, because that's, they're there to save your life and they owe you the answers to those questions. And that's how you'll develop trust. Um, like I was very open with my surgeon about how scared I was of this surgery and how I was worried about it. And, um, like I didn't know if I would come out of it. Um, and he was, it was good to have been that open with him. This is so powerful what you just said, Dan. And, and I don't think anyone's ever brought this up. And, and I love you. I love that you went there. And so, you know, you said a couple of really golden nuggets there. One, you know, having trust and faith in that doctor and, and you, you stated the obvious, like a lot of, a lot of really good surgeons have awful bedside manner. Now I've yeah. said, there's a lot of really good doctors in the, in the country. And if you live in a major metropolitan area, there's probably like a handful just within driving distance. Yeah. So my thought has always been like, hey, if you don't get the answer that you want, not that you want, but that you seek, like if, you're, if your question's not getting answered and you're getting the runaround because of the guy's bedside manner, then go somewhere else because it's a business. Oh, yeah. But I love how you, you said like asking, like, what do you know? I've never heard that. And I, I would advise everyone listening to this podcast that's going through this to ask that question of their surgeon. Like, what do I need to do? Because that's so powerful. Like just hearing you say that. And I, I can't imagine, like, I just would love to be a fly on the wall. And I, I just go back to my own personal experience with my dad. And this is how I can relate it. And I remember like my question to the doctor was like, how many of these do you do? And he said about 12 a year. And I go, huh, that's at the time that seemed like a lot. Now, yeah. hindsight being 2020, you know, that wasn't a lot, you know, guys do 12 in a month, you know? So, you know, it's just, you're, you're absolutely on point with this. And, and there's such a, a powerful moment here uh, on this podcast for and actually audience. there's something I want to add to that because I, I said it, but I didn't say it the way it should have been said because it was actually a piece. I, now I'm remembering it. It was a piece of advice that was passed on to me from, I have a friend of mine who went through a serious heart issue in the last like five years. And I was talking to him about this and he, the, the advice he gave me was go into your surgeon and ask him, what can I do to be your star patient? Because one of the things I know about my work, psychological work with, with the healthcare industry is I have done a lot of consulting. The businesses I consult with, if I think they're invested 100% and will do what I tell them to, I will fight for them. I will work for them as hard as I possibly can. If I don't think they're going to do the work to put to pu pull their business together, I'm not going to work as hard. And this is it's human nature. 
Doctors are the same way. If they feel like you're not going to do a lot of work, they're going to do what they can to save your life, but they're going to work harder if they think you're going to really do everything you can. So the, I, I asked him, what can I do to be your star patient? I want to be your top patient. I want to be the person you remember as that guy worked as hard as he possibly could to survive. And I did everything I could for him because it makes doctors work harder. Um, and that's really the key question to ask your surgeon. Now, the other thing you've got to do, which is on you, is you actually have to do those things. Because if you say, I want to be your star patient, but you don't do the things to be the star patient, it kind of yeah. falls apart. But if you do those things, that puts the onus on them to work as hard as they can for you. It's powerful. Genetics. I know we, I didn't hear anything mentioned and I know now in this day and age, uh, genetic, yeah. uh, genetics are required, uh, for any patient diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Did anything come about any testing that you did in terms of genetics? Um, my great grandmother, my grandmother on my dad's side, uh, died of pancreatic cancer and my, one of his brothers did, but they did the, the genetic testing and found nothing. So like, which I was happy about because they didn't find any markers for any other kinds of cancer either. Um, so genetics, there was nothing else involved. The only thing I can kind of look at is like my own behavioral stuff is like, I was, when I was in St. Louis for a number of years, and even after that, I was kind of big in the cock. I like doing cocktails and such. I probably drank more than the average person. Um, that's the only thing I can come up with is, is the drinking. I smoked for a little while, but I couldn't nail any of that down as absolutely positively what would have set it off. And I wish I knew, like, if you're, if you're religious, they say you die, you get to ask God all the answers to the questions you always, that's a big one for me is how did that happen? Cause I'm yeah. really curious about it. Um, that's the million dollar question, the silver bullet, as they say, right. To, to right. have those answers. I mean, genetics I bring up because, uh, it has become a bigger, bigger piece with pancreatic cancer. Uh, having a family history doesn't necessarily mean that you have a genetic predisposition to a certain gene marker that causes the disease. Um, you know, drinking, as you said, you know, I mean, I know, but like, unless you're like a, a raging, alcoholic and have pancreatitis, you know, we know that pancreatitis, not everyone again, you know, yeah. but a, a, a certain percentage will get pancreatic cancer because of, because of that and because of the alcohol intake. But like, you know, the casual drinker or someone who was a binge drinker in college, but you know, is now completely, you know, out of that system or out yeah. of that routine that doesn't just set you up and same for smoking. I mean, you know, it's interesting. I, I think as a whole, and this is where I'll leave this on the genetics piece, I think we are just scratching the surface, right? And so maybe yeah. there are some new genes that we will find out in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years that potentially a larger percentage of the population have that, that cause various diseases, not just pancreatic cancer. But I, I really do believe that genetics and, and possibly environmental, you know, I mean, depending on what we've uh, ingested and, and that could be food or alcohol, you know, related, yeah. who knows, you know, we'll, we'll, time will tell. And I, I think that's the cool thing Right now, that's happening in science. It is moving really quick. There's a lot being done, but there's got to be a lot more, especially in this space. Yeah. Well, and I would say like that's one of the things that when I was talking to 
all of my doctors and the geneticists that I worked with, um, I told them everything I could possibly think of. Like I was in the army and did work with uh, biological and nuclear and chemical agents. And like I was in working in factories for years with uh, chemicals and uh, fiberboard and all kinds of stuff. Like it's entirely possible some of that could have had an effect, but a lot of what they told me was stuff that's that far in your past probably didn't have an effect. Um, but they really don't know. They're not entirely sure. Um, it really is just kind of a luck of the draw thing, which is why I hope that in the future we have some way of just doing testing easily. Like, you know, for women, you go out and get a mammogram every few years or every year, you know, you get a colonoscopy after you're 50, you know, hopefully we have something for pancreatic cancer because it really is. It's one that if you catch it early, like they did tell me, they said like, we caught this at the right time. If they said, if you'd have been in, if you'd have been here two months later, you wouldn't be alive. You wouldn't live. And that's the other thing this whole experience does to you is it changes the way things hit you when you hear them. Um, like there's a comic book artist who came up um, that I saw a couple of months ago came up with pancreatic cancer mm -hmm. wasn't going to live more than six months. And I thought about that and I was like, if that had been me, I'd be dead today. And that changes how you think about those things when you hear them now. Um, that it, it <clears throat> Somebody stamps an ex expiration date on your forehead with something like this at some point, and you really start to pay attention. <laughs> it's powerful. I've got a question here that I wrote down, Dan. You mentioned yeah. PTSD from the whole experience. And one thing that you did is you wrote that letter to your wife. Mm -hmm. And if you didn't get it, if you didn't wake up after surgery, uh, you told your friend, you know, how to get to the safe and get the letter to your wife. What did you do with the letter? Um, <clears throat> it's still sitting in the safe. We haven't really figured out what to do with it yet. Cause I asked her, I said, I asked her after it was all done. I, she didn't know it was there. She didn't know I'd done it. It was long. It was about, it was about a month after I'd gotten home from, from the hospital that I told her about it. And I said, do you want to read it? And she was like, I don't know. And I said, well, I'm going to leave it there until you decide what you want to do with it. If you want to read it, it's there. If you don't want to read it, I'll get rid of it. Um, but yeah, it was, it's something that I'm kind of leaving up to her to decide what she would like to do with it. Um, because as much as this was traumatic for me, it was also very traumatic for her because she was going through her own. And that's one thing that it was one of the things that I was so thankful for, like my company is whenever it came up, they made sure to, they were giving me assistance, but they were also giving her assistance. And that's one of the things that I think can happen is the people who are the caregivers get forgotten and it's very difficult for them because she was going through her own, like her whole family lives in New York. My family lives in Missouri, but they're close, but like still we didn't really know anybody here. So going through this and thinking tomorrow afternoon, I could be alone and trying to figure out how to bury my husband. Um, we went to 
before my, sometime before my surgery, we, there was a friend of mine I discovered had, had died of cancer. We went to his wake and it was a very difficult experience for my wife because she went through it. Like I was going through it as I'm the person who could die, but she was going through it with the, oh my God, I could be the person who's trying to, who's the new widow trying to figure out how to do all of this and be in front of people. And like, I, she was like, I don't even know if I can do that. So if you're going through this, make sure the people around you have support too, um, because they're going to try to put on a very strong face for you. It's as difficult for them, if not harder. Because as I told her, I was like, I'm going to go to surgery. I'm either going to wake up or I'm not. I kind of have it easy. You don't. Like, um, and it can be very hard for, for the people in your life that are going through it with you. Especially like we don't have children, but if you have children, it's going to be even more difficult for them. Um, so that that's the, one of the pieces of advice I would give is watch out for the people who are around you caring for you because it's going to be very tough for them and they are probably going to put on a strong face and not let you see it. So my next question then is related to this, and this is a question that we get often here, Dan. People call in and say, hey, this couple just moved to our neighborhood. They're great people. And the husband just got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. What's the best thing I could do for them? And I know you mentioned, you know, moving to a new community, your CEO, the core values, the company. Yeah. You just mentioned they did stuff not only for you, but for your wife. In your experience, and, and you don't have to name specific people, but what are maybe some of the things that, you know, whether it was the company or maybe some other friends, maybe it was a neighbor that did for you guys as you were going through this? And I know we'll put it in the context of it was COVID. So it wasn't like, you know, you had people yeah. coming over, cleaning your house or, you know, pasta parties at, at the firehouse right. for you or anything like that. So given the context, what was some of the, the nice things or the, the things that you can remember that really made a difference for you guys during that time? Um, one of the, well, and we, Denver is really special this way that like everybody in our neighborhood, as soon as they found out what was going on, our entire neighborhood like the street I live on, at least five or six couples on that street just immediately like mobilized and were there for us. Um, and everybody has their own story because you don't necessarily hear about it, but each one of those people ends up, you find out like somebody there has had cancer and survived it, or they have a family member who died from cancer and they immediately empathize. But as far as the things that I think helped the most were things that helped us feel normal. Um, definitely getting, you know, some deliveries of food every so often where we didn't have to think about cooking and we didn't really want to eat takeout again. That was very helpful. But like some of the stuff that was really helpful to us was we went through a lot of this, like after, sur after my surgery over the holidays, I had such horrible neuropathy. I could not go outside in the winter because everything hurt. Um, and a couple of our neighbors came over and helped my wife put up all of our Christmas decorations. Um, before Halloween, a lot of our, a couple of our friends showed up and uh, helped put up Halloween decorations. And then also came over on Halloween night and helped my wife hand out candy to kids. And I sat in the window and watched. It still sucked for me, but it helped us feel more like something normal was going on. 
And I think that's the part that helps the most is anything that can bring some level of normal normality back to your life is what was probably the most helpful to us. Um, and also just one of the things that it has been a big help to me is there's a friend of my wife's who's, he's a Marine. Um, and he and I kind of connected on the whole having been in the military before. And like every two weeks, he would just reach out to me on Facebook Messenger and ask me, how you doing? What's going on? Just to have somebody ask me how I'm doing when I haven't heard from anybody in a while is really helpful on a regular basis. Um, and he would do it in such a way where he would just ask how I'm doing. And some days I wanted to talk about how I was doing as far as cancer. Some days I just wanted to talk about how my day was. It's kind of the whole, like I said, bringing the whole nor normality of things back because none of this feels normal um, until, and like it still doesn't feel normal. I still, like there's doctor's appointments I'm having to go through right now. Like um, I was due for a colonoscopy and I have to get one day after tomorrow. Um, I've got acupuncture to try to get rid of the neuropathy. Uh, chemo affects your teeth. So I broke a tooth a couple of weeks ago and I get got to get that fixed. And like, I am so looking forward to the day I don't have to, to, to having a full week where I don't just see a doctor or think about my medical condition, my health conditions right now. Um, and there's a point where like we had all these different trips planned that we wanted to do and the stuff we wanted to do. And we just kind of stopped because we didn't know what it was going to entail. Like we had planned to try to buy my wife a new car and didn't because I didn't know if I was going to be alive for it. Um, so anything in the middle of that time period that you can do to help people feel like things are normal as much as possible and to just be, to just be respectful of what they're going through, I think is the biggest thing. Um, kind of asking like, what can I do for you? What would you like? Because some people, it's going to be different things. Like in my house, I was the one that always did the cooking. My wife doesn't like to cook and she isn't great at it, but I was the one who always did the cooking. And if I'm laid up or if I am have gotten done with a chemo session where I feel, feel nauseous, I'm not going to want to cook. But so for, for her, having somebody bring some food over that was fresh food that she hadn't eaten from, gotten from takeout was really nice. Um, so I think for each individual person, it's going to be better, but it all comes back to having a little bit of a sense of a normal life. Cause it's for whether, regardless of whether you get better or you don't, it's not going to be normal. And I think the other thing, the other big thing has been people are continuing to be supportive after, um, I've been declared, um, cancer free. Because there's a lot of people that think like, you know, you fight cancer, you win. Yeah, you're all done. You're not. Like I still, I lost almost 90 pounds. Um, I do not have, I used to be the person, I was the strong person on the block. I would be the one who would go out and shovel everybody's drive, ever shovel everybody's sidewalk when the, when the snow hit. I can't do that now. I don't have the physical strength to do it. If I get on the, if I'm on the floor, I have to get on all fours just to push myself back up. So I went from being very strong to being very weak in a six month time period. Um, and 
recognizing that after somebody is declared cancer free, they're not done. It's probably going to be a year at least before I'm back to normal. So continuing to support people after they're done is another thing that's probably pretty important is asking like, how are you doing now? What do you need at this point? Are you, you know, what things can I help you with now? And do you want that help? Um, I think that's probably, I think that's probably the best advice I can give on that. It's awesome. I, something you just said though, uh, you know, I think when people think like, oh, well, Dan had a surgery, had his chemo, now he's back to normal, right? And as we know with this disease, um, and uh, and then this is where I, I do want to talk about this, you know, you mentioned the, the total cost and, and how that was impacted, but, you know, you're on Creon now for the rest yeah. of your life, you know, there's there's complications that that will arise. And, and so I think this is, my mom's a two-time breast cancer survivor, so this is what I'm going to say. Like her, her cancer diagnosis the first time she had a lumpectomy, she was fine. She went back to living her normal life, and she was a cancer survivor. Second time around, she had a double mastectomy. She had a hysterectomy. She still has some issues now. She's got back issues. You know, naturally she's now now she's older, but she's yeah. still dealing with the. I guess you would say the remnants of the cancer, even though the cancer is not there eating away at, at, at the, the body, there's still the, the remnants of the disease in terms of the side effects, right? And the chemotherapy, uh, the treatments that she had, the radiation, you know? So, so I can relate it from that because my dad wasn't a survivor, but I know from talking to many survivors, it's not as if you go through treatment, have surgery, treatment, and then now you're back on the golf course or you're back in the gym, you know, pumping out 225 and and running marathons. I mean, I think people eventually get to a certain point where they they find whatever that is. And we've seen, you know, people do those kinds of things, climb Kilimanjaro and and do all sorts of things as survivors, but it doesn't happen overnight. Exactly. Um, Well, yeah, because like one of the things I want to do, I want to get back in better shape. I, before I went into surgery, I was walking around the neighborhood every morning for about at least 30 minutes and I was hitting the gym regularly. When I got done, like there was research that came out that showed that if you got a booster while you were immunocompromised, it didn't do much for you. Mm-hmm. So I had talked to, I had a conversation with my, my surgeon and got some advice on like when I should go get reboostered so that I would have enough to fight off COVID if it, if I got, um, if I got exposed to it. Mm -hmm. So I want to go back to the gym, but I can't, I, well, I can now because I got reboosted last week, but I had to wait before I could do that. Um, and I couldn't go like, I couldn't go outside and go walking because the neuropathy was bad enough that it's Denver and it's cold winter. Like it, and people don't necessarily understand that like the neuropathy isn't just my hands are numb if, or, and I would tell people I'm cold sensitive. They're like, Oh, so you're, you just get colder. No. Like if I pick up an ice cube, it feels like I'm picking up a ball of needles. Yeah. Like it hurts. So like, I can't just walk outside. Um, so there's not a whole lot you can do for quite a while. And now that I've got it, like, again, like, I thought about it this morning. I was like, I could go to the gym and try to do something this morning, but then I got, I got colonoscopy on Tuesday, on Wednesday. I've got 
labs I got to go get drawn because they want to check my liver again because my liver values weren't perfect the last time they saw me um, because chemo does a number on your liver. And they want to make sure that my, my liver hasn't been damaged by the chemotherapy. So I just looked at all that and I was like, I could try to start going back to the gym, but it's going to be wrecked this week. So I'm just going to have to start next week. And that's why I say, like, honestly, I'm just looking for, I really am going to, the first week I have where I don't have to talk to a doctor is going to be amazing. Like, that's going to be a huge milestone for me. Um, and that's part of the trying to get back to a sense of normal, because normal people don't have to talk to a doctor every two or three days or have a medical appointment every two or three days. Um, and you can do stuff in your life that doesn't involve a doctor. And that's part of the whole trying to get back to a sense of normal is it takes a while before you can get there. You know, the ringing the bell or me smashing the mug, like that's a great thing to have happen, but there's still stuff beyond that has to go on. And yeah, I, I fully intend to get into better shape, but it's going to take a while. I have faith you'll get there, Dan. Rome, Me too. Rome wasn't built in a day, uh, as they say, but uh, it, you'll get there. I, I, I have faith in that. I want to talk about, and I know before we hit record, you had mentioned some things. And then, you know, in this episode, you mentioned just the cost of care. Now, you mentioned Creon pre-insurance, 10000 10, 10, per month with insurance is 2500 It's per, per 90 day supply. Per 90 days, yeah. Yeah. So... And then you, you did the math on your care was 2.3 million. Yeah. Which is just staggering. Um, it? <laughs> it's just crazy. Uh, and then you paid about 10, 10 to 12, I think you said out of pocket. I think I had that right. Yeah. So, you know, the current president just announced, uh, I think he wanted to kind of do this war against cancer again, the moonshot or whatever yeah. it was. He was in entrusted uh, back in the Obama administration. So, I mean, th there's clearly, and you and I were talking about it, one of our previous recent guests talked about her experience, about her care, how she went to Mexico due to the cost here in the United States. She didn't have really good insurance, but you said you're just grateful that you had this opportunity because of the, the company you work with to be able to get the care you, you got. But it, it's kind of, I mean, I'm sure if anyone, you know, if you're, you're if you got this pancreatic cancer diagnosis, you're going to do whatever you got to do to stay alive, you know, and, and do that. But when you start to throw out these numbers, like 2.3 million, that's, a, that's not, that's serious amount of money, yeah. even with insurance. Yep. It's, it's such a huge staggering amount of money. Um, I mean, like I, uh, my mom's in her seventies, late seventies. And like, I, she has a pretty nice little nest egg right now. So when this all came up, I'm her youngest child. I had a long conversation with her about what was going on and what it was going to take. And she basically told me, um, she would do whatever it took to save my life. She, I have no doubt, would have bankrupted herself keeping me alive. Mm -hmm. um, and that was one of the more difficult conversations I had. 
because I didn't know what it was going to take. I just knew anybody I knew that went through this, it was devastating financially. And I think probably one of the key things that I hate about this disease, cancer in general, but pancreatic cancer especially, is you've got such a small percentage chance of surviving that the last thing you want on your mind is what it's going to do to you or the people around you financially. Because mm-hmm. it takes so much work just to survive it. Um, like I said, I'm going to go back to the metaphor I used. I'm standing on a battlefield alone with an army staring down at me and I'm feeling beaten up already. I, how do you face that? And that's a lot of what this ends up feeling like is I got barely any chance of surviving anyway. And let's say I do survive. Am I going to leave myself bankrupted? I have a friend of mine who works as a nurse and she was telling me a story about somebody she worked with who um, was diagnosed with cancer, survived it and ended up homeless and died homeless because of the cancer treatment, because of how much it cost. Um, And it's why I count myself very, very lucky. And like, it's going to be a while before I can really take up the fight the way I want to take it up. But to me, this is, it's a huge deal to work on because your, your ability to pay for treatment should not affect whether or not you live or die. Mm -hmm. It's, it's not fair in this world um, that it's attached to money. It, it shouldn't be. You should you should be able to get treatment. Period. I have a friend of mine who was diagnosed around the same time as I was, and she did not have the same kind of insurance I did. And her her story is not nearly as bright as mine, and that's the best I can say about it. And it makes me angry when I think about that. Is she? Her entire, hers was much as what you were talking about is she went to a treatment center and was basically told until you can pay us X number of dollars, we can't do anything for you. That to me is completely unacceptable. We shouldn't be deciding who lives and dies based upon whether or not they have money. It's sad. Instead of, uh, you know, and and I, 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 go back to my years before I started Project Purple. I was uh, in the financial services industry. And I remember meeting with clients and they'd be so worried about their retirement savings, their 401k, their IRAs. And I remember back then saying, hey, I, I, you have a pretty good nest egg, but what do you have for health insurance, long-term yeah. care? Because that's really Pandora's box once you open it up, right? As you know, um, whether you get sick with cancer or another debilitating disease like Alzheimer's or ALS, ALZ, yeah. you know that, that that could really, you know, like you said, it could it becomes really a life or death discussion at that point. Can you afford the treatments in order to stay alive? And I'm sure people go down this path. Like, is it, you know, these treatments, is it going to be the end all be all? Is it going to save me? Or is it going to put my family and I on the streets, literally, you know? And so as much as I fight every day for a cure for this disease, I I think the bigger question and maybe one of the bigger issues that we are avoiding, Dan, is this cost, this cost of proper treatment and equal treatment 
regardless of your sex, your race, your demographics, or where you live, quite frankly, right? Because we know, I mean, unfortunately, this is, I guess, the way our system works. And, and, you know, there's there's systems, you know, other system, other countries, I I know Canada, people say, well, universal healthcare. Well, there's people in Canada that live in Nova Scotia that have to go 12 hours just to get a scan. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They schedule months in advance. You know, they can't get in. Like my uncle lives in Toronto and we have these discussions all the time. He's waiting for an orthoscopic knee procedure that's been on the books for a year and a half. I think now it's pushed back even more because of COVID, right? So, you know, I'm not here to debate, you know, the systems, but I am here to debate that regardless of your income level, regardless of where you live, regardless of your faith, your your ethnic group, your your sex, your race, your religion, you should be able to get the same care, you know? And, and if there's treatments out there that work and someone comes in and they're diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, wherever that may be, they should be able to get that treatment that works and get the same yeah. type of quality treatment that everyone gets. I'd love to see us get there. I don't know if it'll happen in our lifetime, in my lifetime, uh, but you know, we'll, we'll damn well, we'll push really, really hard to make sure that you know people are aware of this. And I, I think going back to you know this episode, Dan, where you say you know ask those hard questions, I think that's part of it too. You know, is like empowering the patient to be able to ask those hard questions because uh, I'm sure you experience this. If you don't ask, they don't give you right. Like if you don't ask for that extra yeah. blanket while you're in chemo, they probably are not going to offer it to you. And I'm using right. a very crude example, but there, there's many things that I'm sure are, are not just, hey, here you go, because you're getting treatment of pancreatic cancer. Well, and the other thing, the other thing is, and like, this comes from my background of like, just under like, everything I learned about work psychology, experts, experts jump a lot of different nodes in doing things. Like, if you if you're given if you're given a, a recipe for how to make a dish, it's got like do this, then do this, then do this, then do this. Like you've got a set of steps you go through. Experts don't think that way. They immediately go, they run through things at a much higher level and much faster at making really quick connections. So when you're talking to somebody who is an expert oncologist, oncologist or an expert surgeon in this field, they may not think to tell you certain things because it's just in their head as something they do automatically. So that's why it's important for you to ask questions because they probably know the answer. It's just, they're not thinking to tell it to you because they're thinking in a different way. Plus most of your surgeons haven't had this disease. Mm -hmm. They know how to work on it, but they've not had it. They don't know that experience. Um, so there are things that you feel and things you need to know that they don't necessarily think to give you because they're not experiencing it themselves. Um, they know it all at a different, in a different way. There's a big difference between knowing something because you work in that area and knowing something because you're experiencing it. And if you're experiencing it, your perspective is very different on the things you need to know. And the person who's the expert who does it will know those answers, but they might not necessarily know to tell you those things. Powerful. I got two things left for you here, Dan. Yeah. And first is my last question. And as I've said, um, most of my questions are loaded. Uh, this is a loaded question. 
<laughs> there is no right or wrong answer to this. This is, uh, this is your answer. How do you define pancreatic cancer? What's your definition? Um, wow. How do I define pancreatic cancer? I think the best way that I can define, like I, I defined it in my head. Like I named it Thanos. Like that was what I named it throughout this entire experience was I had to kill Thanos. I told my surgeon, I, I said, when you're in there, go for the head, just go for the head. Um, and it was something inside of me that was trying to kill me. Um, and I think that one of the ways that we have to be careful is you don't want to make your body into the enemy. So your body isn't what's trying to kill you. The cancer is trying to kill you. It is in your body, but it's not your body trying to kill you. It's something in you that is trying to kill you. Um, because if you go down the road of thinking about it being your body's trying to kill you, then you get into the realm of hating yourself or hating some part of yourself. So for me, pancreatic cancer is the thing that was trying to kill me. Um, at a much higher level, it's what it, it's become. It's become what I want to fight in the future for everybody who has to deal with this. I'm not a surgeon. I'm not a doctor. I'm not that kind of doctor, but I want to be able to have an effect. I want to be able to have do something that will change it, change other people's experiences, and in some way, whether it's even at an individual level or at a, at a system a systemic level. Powerful. Last thing here: if someone listening to this podcast wants to connect with you, where is the best place for them? I know we mentioned social media. I know you're on Twitter. Want to give that out? Website, yeah. email. the The choice is yours. Um, yeah. So the uh, there's two th two places that I think they're the best way to get a hold of me. One is um, if you go to Twitter, I've got my professional Twitter account I use, which is Doctor Dr. Hawthorne with an E at the end of it. Um, kind of an amusing topic there. I my my middle initial is R, so it looks like Doctor Doctor Hawthorne. <laughs> Um, I just that wrote that has, down and I was like, did yeah. I just write that right? Did I write that down right? <laughs> well, and it's funny because I put together an email address when I was in graduate school and got read the riot act by one of my professors who was like, it's awfully, a, it's awfully presumptuous of you to think you're going to get the doctor title. And she went on for like five minutes. And I was like, uh, okay, so my middle initials are, so it's Dr. Hawthorne. It's not Dr. Hawthorne. It's Dr. Hawthorne. So, um, there's that, that also has a link to my LinkedIn account, but also a good email address for me is dan.hawthorne at cogniphony.com. And the, it's spelled C O G P H I hang, hang on cogniphony C O G N I P H A N Y.com. So like epiphany and cognition put together. Awesome. Um, that's perfect. Dan, thank you for allowing us to share your journey with pancreatic cancer and for coming on our podcast and 
really sharing some powerful nuggets uh, there with regards to your experience. So I really appreciate you giving us the opportunity to be along uh, on this ride with you here and, and sharing your journey. It's been inspiring. Thank you. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. I'm, I'm really, I really want to get as much information out there as I possibly can. Awesome. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. If you like what you heard today, feel free to like this episode and share this episode and follow us wherever you may listen to podcasts. That's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. Please be safe and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.